before we start that, you know, we've been doing this for the last few weeks, but just wanted to ask our listeners that, you know, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you enjoy what Patrick and I have to say, you know, share it out, let other people know, you know, we're trying to grow this podcast. We want to get this as wide as possible and, and share these ideas as broad as we can. And this week, if you do have any thoughts uh, or any feedback or anything, you know, let us know. We're, uh, we're open to it. Now, I want to start this week with something called proof of human work. I think it's quite a big topic. We're talking about a specific idea, but I think this could be quite philosophical at some level. So that's about the rising use of AI to produce content. So as we know, you know, if, if you haven't heard of, right. of AI, if you haven't heard of ChatGPT, the poster child, you know, you've been living under a rock. It's continuing to grow. AI products mean some of the fastest growing products in history. And whether it's used as the input into the work itself or whether it's it's the work that, you know, the actual output, it's absolutely growing huge. And generative AI tools, so these are the tools that can create text or audio or visual content based on a text input. Really what it's done is it's democratized content creation, made it easier than ever for anyone to get into it. But there's obviously a huge portion of the industry that has relied on creating this original content before AI and, and ChatGPT came out. And even there's those who expect to receive original content. And so the challenge is, how do you distinguish between human work and AI work? So at the moment, you can probably still tell a little bit, you know, AI still has a few little bugs here and there, and you can still point it out, or you can tell the difference between the two. But it's only the beginning, it's going to get so much better. And so today, what I want to talk about is an idea to verify human work. So I will say as well, it's probably not a complete idea yet because I think this is quite a big problem. It's an evolving problem. And I think what I want to put forward is, I think the starting point of an idea, but it's probably not the whole idea. So let me give you some examples across industries. So there's the people whose job it is to create content. So think writers, artists, musicians, voice actors, movie actors. There's been heaps of incidents recently where deepfake technology has been used to portray actors saying or doing certain things in illegal ways, basically. There's definitely been a lot of that in the media. Did you see that? Someone created a Drake song. Yeah. And it's better than Drake's original songs. I, I was like, there's no way of telling that wasn't him. I actually, like, I've saved it and I listen to it regularly. Yeah. And, but so for, for Drake, that's not good, right? Because somebody else is benefiting off his name. And then if he goes to produce something, how can he prove that it's actually him and it's actually his original content? Yeah. If we go beyond the content creators, and that's probably the main application, I think, but think about the business world. So you've got freelancers or contractors doing work. You know, think about designers who create a logo. They need to prove that they've spent the number of hours that the invoice says. So you can't just spend 10 minutes doing a logo using AI, but charge for eight hours, which you would normally charge if you were, you know, going through the process in traditional means. Or in education, students submitting an assignment or an exam, they need to prove that it's original thought. So I think across all industries, you've got this example of how do you prove or how do you verify human work and prove that it's not AI work? So, yep, totally understand the problem. So, what, what, what have you got? Well, the idea, so I think it's three parts. So, first is a verification badge or a label that can be applied to work. So, it could be a watermark, a QR code, a link, um, an icon, anything like that. The second part is a commitment to like proactively show or make available the process of getting to the outcome. So showing that proof of work, because I think obviously with AI, it's almost an immediate thing. You put in the text prompt, you put in, in the prompt, and in three minutes, it'll come back versus you can show, so again, using that logo example, you can show all the different concepts that you've done. You can show the, the research you've done to get to that point. And then the third part is a paid membership or a community where members agree to standards. You know, it could even be that they have peer reviewers or checkers or things like that. So it's kind of that commitment to uphold these standards within the industry. And if you don't, you know, you'll eventually get found out. Just like a um, sort of 
like peer-reviewed journals in universities and around the world. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, that peer, peer-reviewed journals. Yeah, I have some issues with that that I'll, I'll tell you about offline. But yeah, go on. All right. So I think even there's opportunity for blockchain here. Blockchain effectively solves this issue of original content online. You know, NFTs and and just the blockchain in general. You know, with cryptocurrency, that's kind of what it's about. But I think it would still present some challenges using this to solve this problem. People not able or not willing to use the blockchain. There are different blockchains. So how do you kind of you know cross reference and offline work as well? So if if you are doing and let's say you're drawing some illustrations, hand drawn illustrations, you know obviously that's not online. So blockchain is not going to work there. But ultimately, like so many things, this problem, I suppose, is about trust because we want to trust that the work we're providing or receiving is human work. And look, not in all cases, because, you know, maybe you do want AI received or provide AI work and and maybe that's fine. But I think this is an example where, you know, those people who need to do it as part of their job, as part of their, their lifestyle, they need to be able to prove it. Yeah, I think the issue that you're really highlighting here, again, in that last point was what brought it together for me was around the the immediate sort of constant day-to-day creation using AI and proving that. And however you do prove that work needs to be automated because there's just no time to to go through the some sort of process to prove that work. You know, if you're just doing day-to-day sort of content creation or, you know, it's over a, over a quick, smaller timeframe. The reason I bring that up is because the existing method that we have for things like copyright, it's like, how do you prove that you do this? Well, you know, at the end of the line, we have the legal system and we have courts to work out these sort of arguments. Oh, no, he didn't draw that. Like, he, you know, he didn't come up with that idea. I came up with that idea. That's my IP or whatever. You know, the, the end of the line is the the legal system and they prove who did it based off of two different sort of arguments, right? So all the evidence gained by both sides. and So that's how it is. But I think what you're talking about is definitely more relevant for the for the day-to-day, you know, AI content creation. Yeah, you know, yeah, yes, yes or no. I think if you're using AI as an input into the outcome, that's that's fine. Everybody is using, say, ChatGPT to write a few lines, for example. Or, you know, it could be that an AI outcome is expected and that's fine. But, you know, in that kind of example, if I'm a business and I'm expecting to receive some human work, you know, and education is another good example where the students should be providing original thought in response to a question or an exam answer. They may use AI as the input, but in that case, the university is not going to take the student to court because it's not work. But the student still needs to be able to prove that it's their work. So that's kind of the concept. It's an everyday thing that can prove that this is your way. And for content creators across all these different industries, that's the important part is that I can prove that this was my work. So it's a trust. It's a credibility thing. Kind of brings all those things together. So I want to move on to the market size and is this desirable? Would people want something like this? And I think obviously from a market standpoint, the use of AI is huge and will only keep getting bigger. I did actually find a company in the US called Verified Human Info, which is kind of doing what I've proposed here. So they have a label or a badge and then they have the community element so you can join them and they have standards that their members have to adhere to. It only began in April 23. So from the time of this podcast, what about six, seven months ago, but they seem to be growing and it, it's becoming quite comprehensive. So it's good to see them moving so fast. Just this month in mid-October, Adobe announced they're adding or adopting content credentials, which is the same kind of thing. So it's a little icon across all the Adobe products. So whether you create an image or a video or whatever it might be, you put the icon over it, you can hover over it and see the, the history and the transparency, so who made it, what it is, what AI tools we used, etc. Awesome. And content credentials, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. Content credentials is what they're adopting. It's it's basically a, a third-party 
open source piece of software that you could apply to any image creation, not just Adobe. And then going further, it's powered by something called the Content Authenticity Initiative and the C2PA, which are these kind of cross-industry, cross-collaboration authorities, I suppose, which are kind of helping provide this transparency around around content. And just the other one, OpenAI, who is the, the creator of ChatGPT, they're debating if and when to release their AI-generated image detector. So there's another one where you'll be able to tell, so you'll be able to upload and tell whether it's an AI image or not. So I think we've got some of the biggest companies which are, oh, and authorities, which are pushing towards this proof of human work concept or proof of human work idea. So I think there's definitely validation from a market standpoint. And there, there are companies and people and content creators who are using it. So I think validation is there. If you were to create your own, so talking about going in and creating something on top of or, you know, as well as these, you know, there's always room in the market. I think the fact that these companies are doing it just proves validation, but it doesn't mean there isn't still opportunity. It could be that you focus more on a particular niche as opposed to trying to do everything. And so you become really well known for a particular niche. I think on the technical side, creating the badge, creating the label that can be assigned to a piece of original work and then maintaining that database with all the information, that part of it should be easy enough. I think the bigger challenge is actually ironic. It's how you get people to trust that this label is a label of trust. Mm. So there's, It's not a chicken and egg, but it's, it's an ironic challenge that we're trying to build trust that, hey, we are the trusted organization. I'm not going to say trust again. I've said it too many times. Um, uh-huh. But the companies I mentioned before are all these existing authorities, which are already playing in that space around content transparency and history. So that's kind of an unfair advantage they have, I think. But I think there's still opportunity in some niche industries. And then from a viability standpoint, so from that financial sustainability, I think you'd run it as a not-for-profit. And as a revenue model, we could either look at membership. So that gives you ongoing access to the badge. So once you, yeah, once you join, you've got access, but if you leave, you know, you lose that access or it could be sponsorship or advocacy by the organizations that would probably benefit most from knowing that work is, is human. So it could be record labels, for example, as opposed to the individual artists, or it could be both. Mm. If you have it as open source, that could also reduce costs. So allowing others to contribute. If you were going down the blockchain route, something like a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO could be an interesting concept. So yeah, I think that could be how you could build a, a blockchain-based solution. But it's an interesting area. Like I said at the start, almost a philosophical debate at some point as well. You know, what is human work versus AI work? Does it even matter? Do people even care what the kind of outcome is? So I think this is, will be an ongoing debate, but still within it, I think there's some opportunity. Yeah, definitely. My thoughts are it definitely is an opportunity for sure. I don't. I'm not personally a fan. I think it's just just bores the shit out of me, and it's just so like just such like. Just depressing. Just anything to do with regulatory or restrictions, bringing people down. You know what I mean? Ugh, disgusting. I just don't want to be a part of it. But there's definitely a need for it, and it's definitely an opportunity. I'm not going to deny that, and it's probably going to happen. So, yeah, no, good idea. I'm definitely there for it. Cool. All right, what do you got? We're going to go back on the trend. I feel like every few weeks we've got sort of like a um, environmentally conscious sort of idea. So it's become sort of trend, and it's you know it's hard to ignore in the world at the moment. So got a real simple one for you, which if it was done maybe five years ago would be innovated and you know invested in, but I'm just slowly catching up with the rest of the world. So here's the problem. There's basically, you know, as we know, there's a growing awareness of demand for eco-friendly and sustainable products. I know South Australia, where you are, they've banned single-use plastic packaging and, and all that sort of thing. So people are always looking for ways to reduce their waste, right? Along with that, over time, I've noticed this sort of emerging industry 
of these sort of corner shops or, you know, sort of mini supermarkets, but it's like an organic sort of supermarket, an organic sort of like uh, shop. And they basically just sell things in their sort of raw material and people can go and bring their own containers and buy the products with their own containers. For example, they come and they squeeze their washing detergent into their own container and then they go and use all their washing detergent and they come back and they squeeze their thing, you know, a month later or whatever, right? So they're not, you know, getting that constant new packaging for for the new the new thing every month, which which makes sense, right? It's like surprising that we even went down the new packaging route. We just love convenience. So it's sort of sort of why humans have done it. But I guess there's yeah other examples, you know, people do it with like spices is another one I've seen. So people have done it with spices. So they, you know, they come in and do the spices. And that's where it's actually sort of sprung my idea. I was like, do you know what's a really good industry? It's quite high margin and you know, becoming a luxury product. And that was coffee. So I drink a lot of coffee and so does the rest of the world, actually. I've got some stats on that later, but it's sort of like I've been drinking instant coffee lately. I know, disgusting. It hasn't been by choice, but I sort of finished the jar and there's a jar in my hand. I'm like, why can't I just go fill this up with coffee? I don't want another jar. I don't want to buy another thing. It's like, because these jars take up a lot of space. And so I was like, why can't I just go fill this up? So that's my idea. Sustainable sort of, you know, coffee, the refillable coffee brand. So, you know, we create a bit of a brand out of it. It's quite cool. And, you know, you, you refill your jar up full of coffee. You know, it's going to be obviously, I'm thinking instant brand because also the instant brand, if you go to a supermarket, that's a group of products in the supermarket on the aisle that hasn't changed in a long time. It's like Nescafe, you know what I mean? Mostly it was like other other brands like that, but it's been the same brands for so long. I think it's there's ripe for disruption in terms of branding in that space as well. Yeah, I like this idea, and I actually think you've tapped into something that's that's broader. And you, you kind of talked about it anyway. Spices, you got coffee. Why couldn't you just have a grocery store, or you know, it's it's a corner store, an organic store, where literally everything is refillable? Because the cereals, you can have refillable cereals. Anything that is, I suppose, not solid um, mm. could affect. Or, I mean, even that. But so instead of having packaging, you literally bring a bunch of containers or bags or jars. So you have to bring your own containers to it. You refill it. And then, I don't know, maybe based on weights or something like that, you then charged accordingly. But I think coffee is a good idea. But yeah, I think you could expand this to anything. Yeah, definitely. It definitely has huge scope for basically, especially pantry items, anything in the pantry, you can basically just replenish. So, and also other ones are liquids as well. So, Huge scope for other things. I definitely, definitely across that. So the reason I chose coffee though, right, is because obviously that story happened to me where I, you know, got the jar, it was empty. I was like, why do I need this? And, mm. you know, I had to go buy another one, get another jar. It was annoying. But also, if you look at coffee, basically coffee is like this massive industry around the world. I don't think people realize how big coffee is. Like everyone knows that, like, oh, everyone drinks coffee. But let's let's put it this way. In 2020, it was estimated that global coffee consumption was at 166 million 60 kilogram bags. Yeah, it's a lot. So approximately 9.96 million metric tons of coffee around the world. Like that is like unfathomable num a number. Like you can't even comprehend how massive that is. Like it is this huge commodity, and it's actually I think it's the third biggest commodity, so most traded like item in the world. And if you go to the supermarket, it's literally Nescafe. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so I'm, I'm just saying in terms of the brand, there's also that opportunity in there as well, right? There's also that side. But then again, you know, if we just go lean back into the, the environmental thing, I read a stat that 56% of Australian households actually actively trying to reduce their environmental impact as well. And this could be a stepping stone for that. Yeah, I, I think you've you've got the right market. There's lots of coffee drunk. I mean, even without that stat, you know, I probably would have thought that it would be up there in terms of that commodity only because most people will drink at least two cups of coffee a day. And, you know, there's 
8 billion people in the world. So even just on that, it's it's a huge number. And that 56%, so that's actively trying. I would say almost everyone, upwards of 90% would do it actively or at least passively. And there is a want to do it. You know, everyone realizes that we need to recycle. You know, there's a lot of things around the environmental aspects at the moment, but it's how easy it is, you know, how cheap it is, because it always in the end comes back to the economics. So Unfortunately, economics always outweighs environment, unfortunately. So I think if you can make it easy for them, if you can make it cheaper, because obviously you're only mm. you're only paying for the ingredients, not the packaging as well, then yeah. Exactly. And that's where the opportunity is because, you know, you do have those refill stations. So what I'm thinking the model wise is you buy your first one in the supermarket, right? You get your jar and then you have those refill stations all around, like, you know, in shops near you or wherever. And that's what the one you go and refill, okay? Well, it, it's the Oktoberfest model. You get your entry, you get your glass, and then you just got to go around and, and refill it everywhere. Any of those events. <laughs> no, exactly. They probably do it for similar reasons, probably more economic, but, you know, it has the environmental benefit as well. But yeah, exactly. That's the exact model, right? So in terms of actually, you know, can we do this? You know, there's just packaging and material. I think, you know, the hardest part will probably be the logistics. So, you know, actually getting the coffee to all the, you know, shops and, you know, organizing that. But it's not an unsolvable problem. This is something that happens every day, warehouses. You know, you, you could have <laughs> you could have a truck that drives around. You know, the cement trucks where they have that tube that goes out. So you just put it through the door, like a pipe through the door, put it straight into the big vat and then just let it go <laughs> and you just drive around to all the shops. I actually love that. I love that. That's so hilarious. Can you imagine that? A coffee truck and it's like, and it's like part of the branding and the coffee truck is a cement truck with the spinning thing on the back. And that's just like part of the brand. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> Stroke of genius there. So yeah, again, you know, it's the logistics sort of issues and that's where it comes if we start talking about, you know, is it viable as well? It's just around that, the whole supply chain of getting the coffee and creating the coffee from the factory and, you know, doing all that thing and differentiating it, I think is sort of going to be the key challenge initially along with the distribution channels. So finding all those local corner stores and all the eco-friendly shops, which are emerging, by the way, there's a lot of them. Do you know what though? I think cost-wise, th- this would be much cheaper because it's almost the wholesale level to an extent because there's already the distribution networks to get the products in their packaging to the stores. So you've already got that. I mean, it depends here as well. If you're talking about opening a store and having this as the store, that's a thing. Or you're talking about a distribution model where you're asking other stores to do this for you. And it could be either. Hmm. But I think in that first option- That's what I'm talking, yeah. With this organic movement, I also think there's this move towards the warehouse style. So you think about Costco, where you're going in, you're buying bulk, and it's just kind of these big open, the the roofs aren't even finished properly. You can see all all the beams, you know. So even if you had a warehouse and literally you're just getting all these big boxes or big tiles of whatever the ingredient is of coffee say and you're just setting it up in the warehouse having people come there you've got minimal kind of retail space so you're not paying that much per square meter or whatever it is you're not having to worry about the distribution you're getting people to come in and refill so there's less cost in the packaging i reckon there's there's something in it yeah i I totally agree yeah both models and so, yeah, Rodney's brought up a really good point there. Producer Rodney, uh, for those listening, is about how do you know when the coffee's past the use-by date and the food and health safety regulation? And I was going to bring that up as well as, you know, a challenge executing this one. And, you know, is it viable? I think yeah, there must be ways around it. I mean, people are definitely doing it already with other products. So... I think how I'd probably approach it is if I was doing the model where other stores are distributing it for me, I'd probably put the onus of the law onto them, you know, make it a clean purchase from me that they can resell. And then it's up to them to manage their due by dates, you know, just like they're managing any store. 
you know, which could come, you know, especially if we're talking like, you know, freeze dried coffee, like instant coffee, but better, right? Obviously in terms of flavor, but if we're talking freeze dried coffee, that stuff lasts for ages. So I think you have some scope there. Yeah, that's sort of all we've got for today. Dan, unless you have anything else to add? I do not. A couple of good ideas. Let's get to them. Awesome. All right. And uh, thanks everyone for following us on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah.